Hello! Uh, usually at this point I say God is good and everyone says all the time and I say all the time God is good. But I want to do something a little different. Uh, <laughs> just to mix it up, we don't want to get too comfortable in this church, right? And uh, I'm going to say, uh, I want you guys, whatever I say, to respond with God is still good. Right? God is still good. So even when we lament, even though when we are suffering, even in good times, even in bad times, even when we doubt, amen, amen. And that's, that's what we proclaim, um, that God is good, and God is good all the time, but we don't uh, sweep anything under the rug at Renew. We want to be our whole selves, uh, vulnerable and open to come as we are, because we know that God is big enough, right, to handle whatever we got. And so God is good all the time, even when we're not good. Uh, amen. Or the world is not good or hard things are happening. And we recognize that there are people that suffer. There are people uh, there's tough stuff. There's injustice in the world. Um, there's oppression in the world. There's fighting and hostility in the world. And we recognize that as the church because um, that's what Jesus did. Amen. But we are c continuing our series on decolonizing the church. And I have to confess that I'm very nervous. Like this series, this whole time, I, it, you could hear my heart going boom, 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 boom. But as I was telling uh, some of the worship leaders in an email uh, this week, I haven't received any hate email yet. So <laughs> we're doing okay. We're doing okay, right? Uh, but maybe I'm not bringing it hard enough. So, uh, <laughs> but decolonizing church, uh, deconstructing, rethinking, renewing, and um, in an earlier sermon, I we talked about we went to, we took a history lesson, right? We talked about the doctrine of discovery, which was sourced in 15th century papal bulls, saying basically to European explorers, wherever you go white European explorers, wherever you go, you are ordained by God. Whatever land you discover is yours for the church, for God. It doesn't matter who's there, right? It is yours because you, we, are God's people. And when we look at our nation's foundations, also the foundation of the church in our nation, it's founded on the doctrine of discovery, right? When European settlers met the first, or met the Native Americans, the indigenous people on, our, on this soil of North America, it was something different, right? They saw people that were different from their experience. And because um, the explorers had the power of navigation, the power of travel, the power of their own language, the power of organizing, being able to organize their thoughts, their culture, their processes, they immediately kind of formed patterns, a configuration that said, this is good, right? This is civilized. This is, and they had the backing of the doctrine of discovery, right? This is righteous. This is God-ordained. And this is savage, Right? These people are savage. Right? So that's how kind of 
race, you know, and bodies and the, the degree, the color of bodies became a thing in, ter- in terms of categorizing people. We have the order, we have the language, we have the God, and we have the backing of God. And that's what we mean by whiteness or the colonized church. And I want to, I want to again be clear, like when I say whiteness, I'm not necessarily calling out whatever white guys out there and saying, you, right? That's you, you know? We have to understand that it's a, it's a construct. It's a system. It's a culture. It's, it's a way of living. It's the air we breathe. And, and to kind of actually look critically at our theology or our traditions in the church, our background, and say, oh, some of it is like biblical, is Jesus, right? But some of it has been reinterpreted or reshaped um, to fit right, the dominant culture or to maintain control by the powers that be. Are you with me, church? Yes. Not in trouble yet, right? No. It's okay to leave, the, leave this room too, and you can write me as well. <laughs> we'll have coffee. Woo! Um, <laughs> where was I going to go from here? So today I want to talk about who is the image of God. We know the image of God, right? The Imago Dei, um, that, that phrase is in Genesis, right? Genesis 1, 26 through 27, about how God made humanity in his image, right? Man and woman, he created in his image, right? Creating humanity as an image, and that was, what, the sixth day of creation, and each day, each kind of degree of creation, oh, God saw that this was good. But when humanity was created, at the end, God said, now this is very good, right? And so that's kind of the base, right? In God's story, when God tells the story of us, of people, God says, humanity, you and me, we are good, amen? Not just good, but very good. Very good, beautiful, like the flowers, right? And like the way that bees see flowers. We're all of that, all of God's love and creativity and the fullness of who God is. I don't necessarily know what image contains, right? Is it, you know, the Trinity? We're communal people, we're relational, okay, image of God. Is it the kind of having the ability to create or wanting to create? Art, right? Engineering, that, the desire to create. Is that what makes us the image of God? Our very bodies, right? Coming from the dust, you know, the way we're shaped, the way we look. Is that what it means to be the image of God? Maybe, yes, <laughs> yeah, all of that. And probably much, much more that we don't necessarily understand or comprehend completely. Amen? But somewhere along the way, when we begin to interpret the story of God through our own lenses, right? It becomes our story, and then we fit, right, the Bible into it, or we fit church into our lenses, our story, then things get messed up and things get awry. You get it? Are you following me so far? So... Uh, Willie Jennings, who's a theologian and I think 
I don't know if he's still at Duke Divinity School, uh, but he wrote The Christian Imagination, um, Black Theologian. And he, t in, in, a, in a talk, a chapel talk to uh, Northwest, not Northwestern, what's the, Wheaton, Wheaton College, he talks about storytelling and the power of storytelling and how those in power are the ones who are storytellers, who get to tell the narrative, who get to shape the story, right? And he says, you know, I tell my students, right? Pick any weapon you want. You can take all the weapons of the world and you give me the power of storytelling, I'll beat you every time. And so you've heard, right, that phrase that history is written by the victors, right? History is written by the victors. That just means when you conquer, you get to tell the story, right? And what gets lost is the story of the defeated or the story of the marginalized or the story of the oppressed. And not just in the States, but Japan, Asia, all over, there is kind of the story of the victors and how textbooks are written even. Um, and so, you know, in Japan, they have like the textbook controversies, which kind of Japanese wash, whitewash like, you know, the oppression of the Koreans or the Chinese, right? Just taken out. And so of their textbooks, we don't understand that, right? In the United States, like that's not a part of our school or education, education, right? Um, <laughs> But, um, okay, so uh, I got to put this in like, like, I want to preach, but then I got to get some of these facts in. Uh, Willie Jennings, blah, blah, blah. Oh, so the image of God. The image of God. When I was in college, or maybe a little afterward, I had a spiritual director, a mentor. Um, I was really wrestling with identity. And... They said, you know, pray, close your eyes. I want you to pray and ask God to show you, like, the image of Jesus or image of God. What does God look like? And so I would pray, and he said, he said come back, we'll, we'll meet again in a month. And I would pray and pray and close my eyes, and sometimes there would just be nothing, nothing. And I would try again, I would try again, and yes, I would... The picture I would get, and you can turn to the next slide. The picture that I would get, it's not on that one, but it's the, you know, you know the painting of Jesus kneeling down in Gethsemane and like the light glowing here? But it would be that or like the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus carrying the sheep on his shoulder. Like I couldn't get white Jesus out of my mind, right? I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. I'm like... Logically, right, historically, the historical Jesus, we knew he grew up in Palestine, right? He was Jewish, and so more than likely was dark skin, right? But the Christianity that I grew up with, even growing up in the Korean immigrant church, my dad being a pastor, still I could only imagine a white Jesus. And I could not shake that. I could not shake that. And so even today, I still kind of do that in prayer is to close my eyes and say, God, show me 
right? Show me your glory. Show me your presence. And different times have been different things. And I've grown a lot in that. But complete freedom? I don't know if I'm there yet. Because what happens in Christendom throughout history is that Christendom creates this dome. And if you've seen the TV show, we're all under the dome, right? If we've grown up in the American Christian church or the East or Western church, you know, if you've been to church, even if you haven't been to church for a long time, our culture is influenced, right? Our politics are influenced uh, by evangelical Christianity, for instance. We all live under the dome. And when you're living under the dome, it's the air you breathe. It's the oxygen. But right this narrative of God is way up here. It's way more expansive, way more mysterious, way more inclusive, way beyond all that we can imagine. But we still live in this narrative, the narrative, the story of the victors. Amen? Amen. And I'll prove it to you that the storytellers win the day. There was a time in American history when slavery was justified through scripture, preachers preached yes. the submission of slaves, yes. right? Yes. You can fit anything. You can fit scripture into any box or story or paradigm you have, yes. right? That's basically proof texting, right? Yes. You know what proof texting is? You take a verse or two here from Paul, say Paul, <laughs> and stick it in there. Stick this in there. Stick this in there to say, oh, women cannot speak in the church. Or slaveries must remain submissive to their masters. Or, man, something against immigration. I don't know how people got that, but somehow out of scripture, they got that, right? What? But when we read scripture, we know, right? Or we try to teach in this way or preach in this way or understand the narrative of scripture. Even, even in that sense, we all have our lenses. We're all enculturated. We all approach the Bible with our own kind of cultural lenses and backgrounds. But we try hard to see the meta-narrative, right, of God, scripture as a whole. And the advantage of trying to and growing into mosaic community, a diverse community, is we get different perspectives, right? And, you know, we have other people speaking. We have other people teaching. Sometimes we have testimony time or third Sundays we share in small groups. We, we learn from one another and not just one preacher from the center. I just do this so I can get paid and I have a job. <laughs> It's easy to laugh at. <laughs> I like to say I'm trying to work myself out of a job by undermining myself. But first the white churches. No. <laughs> um, where was I going with that? Are people mad yet? I don't know. Um, so this image, where, was it, where did I get that? Where did I get that, that, that the image of God was whiteness, right? It was, it's just, yeah, the air I breathe. 
It's being a part of the immigrant church that, were, that always met in big American churches and were mission churches, right? Like, it's that, that somehow you're always subdominant. Somehow you're always within the, what's the word? Paternalism, right, of the white church. Or, you know, growing up, I think I've shared this, like, when I'm getting, I'm too loud in public, my wife, my, not my wife, my mom's saying, shh, shh, right? The Americans are listening. Like, don't embarrass. And I'm like, I was born here. I'm American, right? <laughs> but we didn't have that, like, post-racial, post-modern, like, wording for that, right? I'm like, I was born here. And just the other day, I actually went to lunch with my uh, parents and my Uncle Tom, and my brother and I, we were talking really loud, and she said, be quiet. She started saying, shh, not too loud. There's people over there. There's white people over there. And I immediately responded, we own this country. Right? I'm not going to be quiet. <laughs> so there has been growth, right? <laughs> There's been great growth. Um, we own this country. We own this country. Um, joking aside, uh, <laughs> you're <ready anymore. laughs> um, what's that? Um, but I, I, I just want to take, you know, name a couple uh, things where um, that idea of whiteness and the scale, like it, it didn't really exist it, before, right? Europeans met met the people in Africa, right? And then they're like, oh, I'm this shade and they're this shade. Or when the, the colonizers, you know, ran into indigenous people in North America. Oh, it's different. But there was kind of, you know, the very kind of literal, in the, the literary sense, like, oh, white is purity, right? White is good, white is clean, whereas dark, black is dirty, is, you know, whatever. And so when there's that interaction, then immediately the categorizations start in order to justify, right, your presence and authority and power over those people. Are you with me? And so that's a natural thing. And it's not too far in our distant history where the color of your skin and like kind of the judging along that, those categories affected how we looked at citizenship or suffrage or voting rights, right? So in, uh, in the early days of the US, only white male landowners can vote, right? We know that. You're white, you're male, you're a landowner, you can vote. In 1790, there was the Naturalization Act, which stipulated that all white male immigrants could qualify for U.S. citizenship. So if you were an immigrant and white, like from Europe, then you can become a citizen, but not if you're Asian or dark-skinned or anything like that, right? So the category of whiteness has been used in various ways through laws and cultural norms to shape U.S. immigration policy. In 1868, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution expanded citizenship to anyone born in the United States, including African Americans. But immigrants seeking naturalized citizenship 
still had to prove they were white. And the court soon found themselves in the position of having to decide who was white. As a side note, just because the 14th Amendment you know, expanded citizenship to anyone born in the United States, including African Americans, doesn't mean those rights were given to African Americans right away. It would take at least 100 years, right? Just to like, and if you want to see more of a history, look up on Wikipedia the timeline of voting rights. It's just this, right? Different states had different rules and laws, and they would take, give, they would take away, give, take away, you give and take away, whatever was politically advantageous at the time, right? And it had to do with economics and whatever fear was going on around there. Sound familiar? Um, so, but, but immigrants seeking naturalized citizenship still had to prove they were white, and the courts soon found themselves in the position of having to decide who was white. And, this, um, and then in 1909, the U.S. Court of Appeals in Massachusetts ruled that Armenians classified as Asiatic Turks were legally white. This led to the conclusion or people saying, well, what about other Asian races? Are, are like Filipinos, Japanese, Syrians, might they also be white? So in 1922, a Japanese immigrant named Takeo Ozawa, and if you see a picture of him, he looks white, basically, right? And probably whiter than a lot of white people. <laughs> um, he unsuccessfully sued the U.S., right? He wanted to qualify for citizenship because he wanted to um, own land, his own land, and he claimed that J Japanese should be classified as white. He ended up losing the case. So it wasn't necessarily, now, like, there's kind of a shift, right? It's not necessarily, like, the actual tone or whiteness of your skin, it's you're not Caucasian, right? So you're Asian, you might be whiter than me, but you're still not white. The irony is that th that same year, there's a court case brought uh, to the United States, Bagat Sindh, who's uh, South Asian, he's Indian, and actually technically South Asian Indians are Caucasian, right, are classified as Caucasian, um, but they ruled that Indians were Asian. <laughs> Right, they went the other way, <laughs> um, stripping many of their, their citizenship. So it was like, why did you bring that up? Now I'm, I was a citizen, and now I'm not. You give and take away, you give and take away. What's up with this? It's almost as if someone's trying to maintain control. Someone's trying to keep the order of power in place. And that's not too long ago. Right? And women and black people and other uh, races have been fighting for voting rights, right? It's not, only, it's not until the 1960s, right? That some like real advances were made through the civil rights movement. But you listen to the news now, and you're still fighting. Like, somehow there's like, there's not equality in kind of voting access, right? And you hear of the stories all the time. And 
strangely, that's where the fight is politically, right? In our country, it's like voting, voting this. No, voting rights here, voting. What, what does voting have to do? Just let everyone vote, right? It's... This is to say again, whoever is telling the story is in control. The storytellers make the rules and the laws, determine right and wrong. Um, in the Bible Project, going back to, uh, if you know the Bible Project, you can watch their YouTube videos and they have a lot of good stuff. But they have like this short video on the Imago Day. What is the Imago Day? And one of the things they bring up is, in ancient biblical times, um, the, your political neighbors or the, your other nations were ruled by, the people of Israel followed God, right? But other nations were ruled by kings and rulers and emperors and despots who would proclaim themselves as images of God, right? Literally. I am the image of God. Worship me. Follow me. I'm, I'm God-ordained. Making them all powerful. And they, people would create right, idols or effigies or images of these rulers um, to be lifted up for people to worship um, and be submissive to. Um, if it, in, in the Ten Commandments, you remember what were the one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't create idols. You shouldn't worship idols, right? And you had the whole golden calf, right? Don't. That's what God doesn't want. It's like you don't make creation goes this way, right? You don't create me. I created you, right? And so don't create things and say that's God, right? And worship the things that your hands have made. But instead, worship me. You are shaped by me. You are formed by me. I am the storyteller. And I tell you what is true. And I tell you the only true story. Amen, church? Yes. So, in fact, they, uh, if you remember uh, Samuel, King Samuel, right? They weren't even supposed to have kings. Right? Samuel was the first king of Israel because the Israelites demanded it, right? Samuel? Saul. <laughs> Samuel was like, no, right? It was, it was uh, Saul. And because uh, he was like, kings will lord their power over you. They'll take your stuff. They'll demand taxes from you, right? And so, um, what do you call it? Yeah, they weren't supposed to have the kings, but God relented, right? And that's how Saul became king. Um, and then interestingly enough, so that, there's that image of God, right? But that motif continues in the New Testament, right? It, it's almost as if history and humanity and power has always been like that, right? Because when you, we read the Gospels, Right? The Gospels according to John, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that is actually taken from Caesar, right? The Roman Empire. The Gospel of Caesar was proclaimed in the land, right? This is the good news of Caesar. This is the household of Caesar to which you're supposed to submit. So what the Gospel writers are doing is setting themselves against, and Jesus, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, against the gospel of the empire, against, over and against the empire, saying, it's not the powers, it's not the empire 
That's the storyteller that tells you who you are, right? Or controls things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Are you with me, church? And so, what does Jesus look like? Who is the image of God? And, you know, there's so much uh, we're going to talk about uh, in this series. And, um, but that question, like the Imago Dei, and in our experience or from what we've witnessed, who does that include and who has that excluded, right, in your life? Who have you included and who have you excluded? Who have you deemed as right and good and who have you just not given voice to or not listened to at all? Um, and I want to speak to uh, non-people of color, non-white in this church. Um, because sometimes, you know, when I, I'm speaking about this, you could have a couple reactions. It's like, go, Pastor Dave, yeah, <laughs> right? Like, finally, someone is speaking out. <laughs> um, or it could be like, don't, call, don't, don't point any attention, right? Just, I'm trying to hide in this place. Conflict, oh my gosh. Um, but you can't love others if you don't love yourself. That's the lesson for me in that what does God look like? Like if I can't love who I am, who God fearfully and wonderfully made me to be, like there's, there's deep self-hatred and self-loathing in there. I'm still like counseling, still talking about that, still wrestling with that, still trying to receive God's love. And if I don't love myself, it's hard for me to love others. Do we consider that doctrines and principles rather than flowing from the narrative of God are the story of dominant rulers maintaining control over others? You are unrighteous. That is bad. That is pagan. That is evil. Right? And there's no wonder, especially in the Asian American church, right, how duty is such like a strong piece, like the duty-bound faith being beaten down by the rules. And for all of us, beaten down by our own sinfulness. Right? Did you forget the good news? Like, it's about, oh my gosh, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned, I sinned. Boom, 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 I sinned. It's no wonder we have a hard time loving others because we don't love ourselves. And the whole, the whole gospel and good news is, but God, God is gracious. God has healed us. God has saved us. God has taken that away for us. You don't work your way out of it. You don't Hail Mary your way out of it, right? And there's a lot of things that we beat ourselves down over. You know, I know kind of uh, human sexuality, not human sexuality, but our sexuality um, 
is hard to talk about, especially when there's kids in the room, right? But I always found it weird that the church can't talk about something that God created, right? And, and I kind of find it weird that, you know, all the way up to whenever, right, for me it was 27, oh yeah, I'll go back to college, like, I'm supposed to, like, do nothing, right? And I have all these hormones raging and all these desires. And it's shame, it's shame, it's shame, it's shame. You know, it's, you know, doing my thing in the secret of my room as quietly as possible before, and doing it fast so, you know, no one will interrupt me. And then, then, when you get married... Then it's like, woo, you can love and be free and do all of that. It doesn't just, you don't flip the switch like that. Right? But what is that? It's like, it's like hating the flesh, hating yourself, hating your body, hating everything. And I think we got to take a look at that. Right? I'm not, right, don't worry, I'm not going to, you know, Denounce whatever. <laughs> this is not a thing on purity culture. Maybe in the future. <laughs> we'll stay, I'm going to stay up the middle so people don't leave. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, representation is important. We tell our kids about this, right? If we can see it, we can be it. Right? In your church, what did you see? Leading, speaking, leading worship. What did you see? Who did you see? And then you imagine, like, well, it, our culture, our society even says, if you can see it, you can be it. How are we going to tell our daughters, right? You can, be, you can lead, you can be a pastor, you can preach if they don't see it. Right? Or if they never see a person of color preaching or teaching or leading a small group. Representation is important. The flip side of that is knowing that there is so much more it's like the flower and the ultraviolet, right? God is the bee that sees you. And he's empowering you. And maybe you might be someone who's like, I'm not gifted enough. I don't have the right words. Right? I'm of the least. I'm just an immigrant. I'm just, I don't know the language too well. Guess what? Every single person that God called in the Bible said those same excuses. Moses, Gideon. Amen? So don't let that be a deterrent. But take courage. Because God is calling you. God is pushing you. God is, will empower you to speak and lead. Even if you're not a native speaker. Even if uh, the leadership culture is not what you're used to. Even if people won't shut up. Right? And give, let me speak. Even if, 
If God is calling you, he will empower you. Amen? And I want to see that in this place. I want to see ultraviolet flower stuff like popping out all over. That's what it's about. That's what it means to deconstruct and let God tell the story of his church. Um, there's a... Uh, allowing new voices, more storytelling story from the margins, right? Listen to one another's stories and hear ask questions and then finally if you wonder what kind of church renew is going to be we will be a church of prophetic voices right not pathetic voices there's enough churches out there you know that have the programs or you know can draw you attract you with all the stuff right we could be a big church, but, you know, I don't think I'm the type of guy that could lead <laughs> that for one. But, like, let's be what God is making us be yeah. and be a prophetic church yeah. that looks critically at our culture, that looks critically at our history, that looks critically at the church and wants to do something different, wants to be something different, um, not to be like, ah, right? Not to be like a church Karen or something, but like, <laughs> but like to, to love, right? To love other people. To love and bring forth other voices. So that's all I got. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for this church. And thank you for the opportunity I see it as my own privilege that I have to be educated, to be able to stand here and speak and people listen. And that itself is privilege and a power. And I pray that in the midst of that, your, your word would go out and go forth and not mine. Amen.